Welcome to the Constructing Greatness Podcast, where I will be sharing real stories with inspiring tradesmen and many other driven and passionate leaders in construction and various other industries. I'm your host, Nicholas Ofak, and I've been in the construction business since 1996 as a construction manager and have worked for some of the largest builders in the United States. I'm now a business owner entrepreneur, and partner in a firm where we've successfully managed to be listed on the Inc. 5000, America's fastest growing private companies three years in a row. The main purpose of this podcast is to inspire and create awareness about the value of working in the trades and to educate about the great benefits and rewarding opportunities it can create. Are you ready to take this fun journey with me? Let's do it. Did you know that you should never use paints or coatings on brick, block, stone, or mortar? It's because it needs to breathe. Instead, you can stain it to any color that you'd like, and yes, even the mortar too. Staining is 100% maintenance-free and permanent, unlike coatings. So why don't more people know about it? We wondered the same thing. MNN Masonry Staining is a South Jersey contractor that has partnered with the oldest brick staining manufacturer in the United States and is certified to use their proprietary products and over 45 years of staining knowledge. MNN is scheduling residential and commercial building estimates now. For more information, call Nick at 856 217 1750. Or follow M&N Masonry Staining on any social media platform. Today's guest is a pure entrepreneur. He built an e-commerce marketing technology business to over 200 employees and recently had his company acquired. That company was Sidecar, who works with retailers ranging from $1 million to $4 billion in annual online revenue, including top 25 retailers in the U.S. and internationally. Andre Kosorki. Hey, man. Thanks for coming on, man. Appreciate it. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And before we get into that that recent acquisition, I want to go back to, uh, to the start of your career journey. You graduated from UMass with a legal study degree. What did you want to do with that degree? So in, important detail, I did not graduate. Okay. Got it. I was studying legal studies. I did complete four years. I had some remaining credits, some remaining classes. I was very much sort of entrepreneurial, going down the entrepreneurial path in college, exploring different business opportunities, different sort of startup ideas. And the summer following my fourth year, my senior year, I had come up with an idea. It was a combination of what my mom did, which was software engineering, what my dad did, which was practice medicine, sort of brought those two worlds together and had devised a software application that allowed physicians to carry patient information on Palm Pilots. So back then we had, you know, there weren't iPhones, there were these Palm Pilots, these green screen things that you could do like four things on. It was like a notepad, a calculator, a calendar, a phone book. Uh, I got one of these things and I just thought it was so cool that you could take digital notes. And so what I observed with my, my dad was that he was going to the hospital, seeing patients and recording everything on paper. And there was just so much room for error. And it felt like that was something that needed to be modernized a bit. And so uh, found a software engineer that wrote like a basic version of the program and allowed my dad to now download all his patient information for that day, go to the hospital, pull up that patient's information, then record what he did for them, and then synchronize that data back to his computer to go to build the insurance company and build a really basic version of it over that summer. and then decided that for a multitude of reasons, I didn't want to go back for a fifth year. Everyone that I knew was gone. I didn't particularly like school to begin with. Uh, I was there to like have fun and network and whatever and figure out like who I was. I wasn't there to like, you know, get necessarily a higher education. And I wanted to go explore this thing. I wanted to see if I could turn it into something. And so 
I had a conversation with my parents and I said, like, can I see if this thing has legs? I know I've put all this time in, we've put all this money in, but if this thing works, you know, then it was not for nothing. It was, I, I, I met people, I learned a bunch about myself and I got my sort of my, you know, my, my wheels turning. And so that, that software turned into something pretty quickly. It was the wild west of the sort of the healthcare environment, digital transformation in healthcare had not happened yet. And I had this window of time to execute and do so without a lot of constraints. Um, a lot of the security protocols and compliance stuff, a lot of that stuff just didn't exist at the time. And so I could run really, really quickly and operate a little more fast and loose, which you have to when you're early on in any business. And so I had a little more flexibility to, to run. And so I ran fast after this thing. So there's more to that story. But the short of it is, is that I did not... I love legal studies. I love studying law. I still like reviewing contracts, but I don't have a, I don't have a degree. So you originally, just to backtrack, you, you wanted to be an attorney. That was the reason for it, legal studies originally. You thought you might want to. Yeah, be I just, yeah. I figured that was an important component mm-hmm. of sort of operating a business, the business world. I didn't really fully understand. I also knew that I wasn't history, English in particular, like those, those categories I was particularly bad at. Math, physics, I was always particularly good at. And then I landed on legal studies. I just, it just pulled me in. I was just so enamored by the sort of the practice and everything else. And so I went down that path and I started working at a couple of law firms over, you know, my sophomore year, my junior year over the summer. And the first thing that every lawyer told me was, do not fucking do this. This is the last thing you want to do with your life. As glamorous as it may mm-hmm. sort of seem yeah. and sound, you know, you may be sort of, you know, what you see on TV misre- misrepresents what this is all about. You know, my life sucks. So yeah, this is the other thing. Don't go this route. So, you know, I think it was the combination of like hearing some of that stuff, going into my senior year, having always started up these little ventures they really couldn't have been scaled. They were just little things in college, bar crawls and t-shirt printing and, you know, CD burning and like whatever, whatever like I can come up with. I was just trying to come up with something. It was a combination of those two things. Where I'm like, okay, maybe I don't want to go to that route. And then this sort of this idea coming up and I was like, all right, let me go pursue that. I so love that. I mean, I can relate to a lot of things you said and, you know, back to when you started college, did you have any inclination that you were an entrepreneur? Could you see yourself you know, veering off into the wild, wild west, if you will, like, you know, just figuring it out or, or you were just kind of figuring it out during college. I knew from an early age that I didn't like rules. I was a really bad kid. I got in trouble a lot. I was always pushing the boundaries of like authority. If you told me I couldn't, I was going to show you what, why I couldn't that, did not necessarily always work out for me. But so in that sense, I knew that like the sort of standard path and like conforming to a certain model, you know, following a certain trajectory, following other people's rules, that was just not for me. So I knew that. And then I also was just constantly, my wheels were just constantly turning to to the point in which, I mean, even at an earlier age or a younger age, like I didn't sleep that much because I was just, I was up thinking like, you know, what about this? What about that? And like, they were terrible fucking ideas, terrible. But I was just constantly like, what if you have a pen that has also has whiteout in it? You know? And like, I remember my, one of my buddies brings it back. Like we like devised this thing and like put the whiteout in the, in the pen along with the pen. And we're like, what if we could manufacture this? We should, we should call Bic and see if they want to buy this, you know? So we were always going down that path. So it was the combination of like, always trying to to start my own little venture Mm -hmm. and, you know, never wanting to follow rules. And then also having two immigrant parents who came to this country with very little and, and built themselves up and watching them sort of build up their own careers. And for my life to have gone from one lifestyle to another, because they had gone from one sort of socioeconomic bracket to another because of their hard work. 
I think it was like all those, those three things that were the recipe that at the time I didn't know, but now in retrospect, I can look back and understand what were the things that were sort of, you know, pushing me down this path. Great. I appreciate you sharing that. And that company that you were referencing that you started right after college or, you know, towards the end of college was MetaLink. Mm -hmm. And that was a couple years that you were involved in that. And then is it Omeda? Omeda? How do you pronounce it? Omeda. That happened right after. And that was almost a six-year venture. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, after the success of MetaLink, which grew really quickly, you know, scaled really quickly, we ultimately sort of sold that technology. And, you know, I want to figure out what what, what I want to do with my life next. I wasn't entirely sure. I knew it was in the digital space. I knew it was online. And at that time, it was the, the moment at which software was moving from a disk that you put into your computer and you install locally to software application that you go and you access through your browser. And at that moment, it was sort of very evident to me that all this stuff that we're putting on our PCs is no longer going to be installed locally. It's all going to be online, accessible by multiple tenants, by multiple users, that you don't have to ship out new CDs when you update the software. Because in MetaLink, when we updated our last version, which is version 3.5, all the physicians using that software, we had to reburn all the new CDs and then ship them out to them to get for them to get an update. And that was a very burdensome process, an expensive process, but specifically for the, you know, for the size business that we were. And so when I'd see this transformation, I'm like, this is going to solve a huge problem in the market. It's a tremendous opportunity here, but I have no idea what I want to do with it or what I want to launch or what it's going to be. So rather than sit here and try to devise a strategy and a plan and be very sort of specific and narrow with like what I'm going to do next. What if I start the business, the agency that is contracted to build these things for other people? And I'm going to learn from their mistakes. I'm going to understand what people are building, what they're putting online, and also how to build these things online and build a team that is ultimately going to help me launch whatever that thing is going to be. And so I had this like three-year plan. I'm going to do this for three years. I'm going to get enough customers to create enough cash flow and enough experience. I'm going to be able to finance my sort of next thing from the cash flows of this business and not touch the MetaLink sort of proceeds. And then also learn from all of their experiences on, and sort of find my way in this online world. And it turned into six. It was a fun, small agency that I learned a tremendous amount from that got you know, increasingly bigger year over year and you know, still remain somewhat boutique, but was the impetus for the next thing, which was Snippy. And Snippy would have never have happened and Sidecar never would have happened had I not started from this sort of this agency, this sort of Omeda thing. And so, yeah, so Omeda was a six-year, six-year project, six-year agency, ton of fun. But you, it's very, very difficult to scale an agency. You don't have one specific product. You're running after contract after contract. Each project, you have to go and procure and then deliver against. And when it's done, it's done. It doesn't repeat. And the whole world of recurring revenue and having a repeatable sort of revenue stream was really, really important to me. And so... That's sort of when I got my wheels turning around. Okay, well, what are we going to do? What are we going to build? What are we going to launch? That's our own product, not just a services business. And that's sort of the around six years where we started making the, making the shift towards Snippy. So Snippy.com is no longer. Snippy.com was my one of my sort of greatest passions and biggest failures. Snippy the premise behind Snippy was that consumers are shopping online across multiple stores. And each experience that you have on Best Buy and Target and you know, Gap.com and what, what have you, 
They're all siloed experiences. As a shopper and as a consumer, I want to be able to aggregate all of the things that I'm shopping for, all the things that I'm interested in, and have sort of one universal shopping cart for the web. That was the initial premise. What actually was sort of built was a little bit different, but it started off as this sort of toolbar that you could go to any web store, any online store, and you could collect all the things that you're researching that you might want to buy. And you have one shopping cart that you can't check out from, but it just contains all the things that you're evaluating and you may buy one day in one location that follows you around the web. That was the whole premise. For consumers, you get a sort of consolidated view of your whole shopping world. We can recommend other things you might like. You can find other people that might have similar interests. And for uh, retailers and brands, there was this really rich data behind the scenes because now I know that when Nick shops at Gap, he also shops at Home Depot, not Mm -hmm. Lowe's. Right. And you can start to connect interests across the web. And so it had a really sound foundation, really big idea. And by the way, if you're familiar, if anyone who listens to this is familiar with Pinterest, is that, that right? They yeah. fucking knocked it out of the park. Yeah. They came like two years after we, I think maybe a year after we failed, maybe, maybe it was two years. Their success has nothing, I mean, they, they knew nothing about us. But that was effectively the premise. Pinterest is now sort of, you know, that online, you know, sort of aggregated selection of all of your interests. And, you know, um, and it's enormous, it's an enormous business. Um, but Snippy failed miserably. Um, and it failed almost entirely because of the way that I, I ran it, the direction that I gave. Um, I think my bravado drove a lot of the failure. You know, I had had Metalink. I was running Omeda. Um, you know, the rules didn't apply to me. Things had worked out up until that point. You know, it had successes, not enormous, but I was successful enough to have an, uh, an ego that I shouldn't have. And I think that I didn't understand the, the consumer space. I didn't understand building solutions for consumers. I didn't understand how to scale a business like that. And I certainly didn't know how to build a business like that. And I went to our engineering team and said, here are all the things that I think that it could do. Can you build all of this stuff? And it was just stuff that I was sitting like dreaming about at night and you know, thinking about on the weekends. I was writing it all down. And I was just like bringing them more and more stuff to build. And they were like, we can build all this stuff. But what's the focus? What specifically does this need to do really well? And that wasn't even just a question they were asking to help them do their jobs. It was a really important question from a positioning perspective. Whenever you build something for consumers, there's going to be a very, very clear value proposition. It'd be crystal clear. If I've got your attention as a consumer to come download Snippy and use it, why? What am I doing it for? And... If that's the reason that I'm I'm using this thing, it better do that thing really fucking well. And we failed at that. And when I say we, I mean I was leading the charge and driving that failure in just not being clear and just saying, like, make it do this and that and this. And what if it just does these 50 different things? And so we got a tremendous amount of press for the small company that we were sort of, you know, incubated and launching out of Philadelphia, we had like a wall street journal sort of cover page feature that was, you know, pointing to like the larger article, you know, deeper in the, in the paper, we had a partnership with B&H photo video, which was really big. They were like a two and a half billion dollar retailer at the time. And they were putting like flyers in every one of their boxes that went out. They put us on their homepage, go downloads, you know, snippy and start using this. There were a bunch of like, you know, popular blogs that had posted about us. We were working on a deal with Britney Spears to like, you know, create this whole like set of snip streams. Um, There's a lot of like interesting stuff that was happening from a visibility perspective. And then consumers were signing up 
and they were just falling out. They're like, I don't, what am I using this for? Is it for this or is it for that? I have no idea. And I'm watching all this sort of user data and I'm like, man, there's a lot of people signing up and no one's sticking. And the ones that are, you can see them, they're just sort of using this feature and then using that feature. And the engineering team is scrambling to keep up with things that are breaking. And there's just too many things to fix. And it was just, it was tough. It was tough. And I had put money into it and a former client of Omeda and also a friend of mine had put money into it. And, you know, we were burning through cash, not a tremendous amount, not certainly not relative to the way that companies burn money today, but back then it was very different. Specifically for a Philadelphia company. I mean, East Coast companies were very capital efficient. You weren't dumping tons of money, you know, VC money into things. And so it was a brutal, brutal, I think it was like two years, maybe a year and a half from like, probably two years of like building, getting to launch, launching, getting lots of pats on the back from people who were on the outside looking in. But from the inside looking out, I was like, man, this is a fucking disaster. And I don't know how to get out of this because everyone's applauding, you know, sort of what we're doing. And in a different time, in a different mindset, I probably could have turned that into sort of what it should have been, but I was not ready for that at all. It looks like you learned a tremendous, a lot from it though, in those two or three years that led you to Sidecar, right? Yeah. So Sidecar was from all the pressure of having built it, you know, Snippy launched it and then failed at it. There was a moment of reflection that I had, and also a dinner that I had with my then girlfriend and now wife. Um, and I remember very specifically, we were sitting in a restaurant in Philadelphia and she's like, what are you going to do? You are not sleeping. You're turned inside out. You can't pay attention in conversation. You got to figure something out here. So what are you going to do? And I'm like, you know, and I'm like going down this path of like, I'm talking about features and she's like, no, no, no. Like, what are you going to do? Hi, go bring it up, bring it up a level. She's like, let me ask you a different question. What are you good at? I'm like, well, I'm not good at this. That's for damn sure. I'm not. And she's like, well, what? I'm like, I'm not this B2C world, business to consumer, like not being able to touch my customer and like, and like be, have that interaction with the customer directly. And like, and I kept on sort of talking and talking. I was sort of finding my words and finding my way. And ultimately, what I was articulating to her was that I like to sell sort of business solutions. I'm a B2B guy. I like to understand a business problem, build a solution for that business problem, assign a dollar value to that problem that I've solved, and then transact. And like the B2B world, I understand. And B2C is like scale a business, get millions of users, then monetize it on the back end yeah. by selling ads. And I'm like, oh, fuck, I don't know any of that. Subscriptions. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's just, I, I just I didn't understand that at all. And so, yeah. okay, fine. I'm B2B. I know B2B. How do I turn this into a B2B solution? And ultimately, if Snippy were to be, become successful... It would have become a massive network like Pinterest is today of all this consumer data where brands and retailers and marketers can place ads and try to help consumers discover the things that they manufacture, that they sell, that they, you know, that they make. And that would have made Snippy successful. And it's ultimately what, you know, made Pinterest successful. So someone's going to do it. We didn't do it with Snippy. Someone's going to do it. There's going to be a massive network out there of all of this data online. And retailers and brands are going to want to market to consumers and they're going to have to try to figure out how to market to consumers. So if that network is going to exist, then I'm not going to be the network. What if I flip the coin? And what if we become the solution and the technology that's going to help the retailers and brands market on those networks. And by the way, there's probably not going to be one of them. There's probably going to be many of them. 
There's people going to be marketing on Facebook and on Pinterest and on Google and on Bing and on now, you know, at that time, TikTok didn't exist, but there's going to be all these different places where people are going to be browsing and navigating and connecting with brands and retailers is going to be a really important thing. And so let's flip it. Let's go to the, to the, the other side of the coin and let's build the technology that's going to help all of these folks navigate what's going to be a very complicated world of data and ad placement and positioning and yada, yada, yada. And so we flipped it. What I will say is, and you know, I don't think we have enough time to, 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 to talk through all of it, and it's also particularly boring, but the transition from Snippy to Sidecar was probably another year and a half. Right. Like it was from that conversation that I had with Autumn to, okay, well, what, how are we going to morph it? What's the B2B application going to be? What are we going to build? How are we going to build it? Can we build it? You know, we built it like, and there were all these different iterations and all these different sort of, you know, uh, experiments that we ran. It was a long process to get to the point at which Sidecar actually launched. It wasn't like this one day we said, okay, we're not snippy. We're now sidecar. It was like there's a lot of gray area, you know, in between those two those two points in time. And I think just as a side note, is a really important thing for people to understand from a business perspective that you know folks get really caught up in the headlines of the overnight successes, the companies that started, you know, what feels like last year, and now they're doing a million, two million, ten million, twenty million, hundred million dollars in revenues. They raised a $50 million VC round and all this crazy shit that you sort of, you see all the headlines and all the, how sort of glamorous all that, that stuff is. And, and what is often missed in all of that is how much time was probably spent, how many mistakes were made, how many failures existed along the way for those entrepreneurs, how many products they probably launched and then morphed and morphed and morphed into what ultimately became what you see today as the, that successful product, that, that successful company. And the entrepreneurs and the operators, we know it, but the rest of the world doesn't fully appreciate all of that and the time it takes. And your family members don't appreciate it. Friends don't appreciate it. Why are you fucking working so hard? Does it really take this long? You're still only six people sitting in a room after three years. And it's like, you have no, that's how, that's how this shit goes. And so, you know, I tell people at, I used to do this welcome session at, at Sidecar that Flickr, which was a massive online photo sharing site and like storage site that was ultimately sold to Yahoo. Huge success. Flickr was founded by a husband and wife team who believe they were husband and wife who were like they were like starting an online gaming platform and that gaming platform was like their big idea and they wanted to create a way for you to change the background of the game so they created a photo uploader and you could upload any photo you wanted to to be the background of the game and their gaming company was failing but they realized that like the efficiency of this like photo uploader was like something people didn't have access to so fuck the gaming company. Let's spin this out. Let's going to create a, a site where you can upload photos and you can store photos. It became Flickr and ultimately became massive and ultimately, you know, sold. That same founder from Flickr, I believe this is the story. There might be, I might be getting a couple of details off. Was one to start, go back to his roots and say, you know what, that gaming company, I want to start that again. Try to start another gaming company, you know, V2. And within that platform, wanted people to be able to message each other. And so create a little messaging system within the gaming platform. Gaming platform failed. He spun that out and it became Slack. And Slack is like ubiquitous. It's like the business communication tool, the number one uh, business communication tool that was acquired by Salesforce. And so you don't hear about all that stuff in the background. People 
have to start and fail and start and fail until they land on ultimately what these successes are. And the road is much, much longer and much windier than people like to talk about. The stress, the sleepless nights. I mean, the list is long now. I hear you. So Sidecar and great share. Thanks for that. Sidecar, which has been in business for about 10 years. And actually, that's where we met about eight years ago. We did, I think, your first major renovation. You, you only had, I think, 10 employees at the time. We, had, we have mutual friends. And, uh, you know, I just started with, with my Philly business and did a renovation for you guys. And now that has expanded and expanded again. You were recently acquired by Quartile. And that acquisition, talk a little bit about the process of that acquisition, when that occurred, and just how that transition has been for you. You know, we, we commercialized Sidecar in 2014. It's like effectively when we became, we really became ourselves. We really were sort of honed in. We knew what we wanted to be. We knew what problem we wanted to solve. And we, we knew what we wanted to be great at. So that was around 2014. And we knew that the, Digital marketing landscape was vast, but we chose one particular area and one particular problem to solve. We were very narrow about that and we tried to nail that problem. So conversely to what happened in Snippy, where we went and tried to solve too many problems, we said, you know what? We're going to go solve one and try to solve it as best we can. And so we scaled Sidecar pretty nicely over the years. And increasingly, our customers came to us and said, there's a lot of networks out there. There's a lot of places that I need to be active on to connect with consumers that are looking for things that I sell. So we were focused on one particular thing and we need to be really good at that one thing. But over time, our customers were increasingly asking us for capabilities in all the other networks. So we were just doing Google. We were doing Google, Google really well. But they were saying, I have to be live on Bing. I got to be live on Facebook. I got to be live on, you know, so on and so forth. And so over time, as we were building a lot of success around this one thing that we were getting really right, we were also feeling the pressure and demand to expand our, our capabilities. And so we started to, we started to, you know, expand out and become a much more comprehensive platform for e-commerce companies, but we were doing so at a slower pace than I think we could have, and then we needed to. The market was moving fast. We were expanding, but I think a little bit slower than the market was moving. And as we got to like 2020, 2021 in particular, you know, COVID was an e-commerce boom. E-com exploded. And it became, you know, evident that while it was always on a growth trajectory, it sort of, you know, catapulted forward. And the pressure and demand to expand became even greater. And so at the end of 2020, we met as a board and we all talked about what our options are. We have scaled a nice size business. We're, we are, for all intents and purposes, building a successful business. You always have things you can improve, but we need to innovate. We need to expand our capabilities and we need to do so fast. So we can go and raise a ton of capital. We can invest in our, in our innovation. We can go acquire some small companies and assemble you know, all the parts. Or we can go look to merge with somebody else or look to someone who's trying to do this, who wants to acquire us. And so in the beginning of 2021, we said, we're not sure which path but we know that we're onto something. It's a big market and we got to do something here. We can't just, can't be steady as it goes anymore. And so early 2021, we started exploring conversations with a few folks and early, early in the process. And it usually doesn't happen this way. Early in the process, we got, we got connected to these awesome folks at Rockbridge Equity and a company that just made a, significant investment in called Quartile and explained our story. And we said, huge e-commerce market, huge digital marketing landscape. We've nailed this faction of it. Our vision 
is to be across all major channels. Here's what we're great at. Here's what we're not so great at. And here are the sort of building blocks to get to the next phase of this business. And they said, funny you should say that. Because A, we totally agree with that sort of vision. We are totally behind your sort of approach to the market. We just made an investment in a company called Quartile, who's doing exactly what you're doing, but on on the other side of the earth on Amazon. Your customers are asking you for Amazon. Their customers are asking them for for Google. Match made in heaven. Match made in heaven. Yeah. And so from a commercial perspective and from a market positioning perspective, this makes a tremendous amount of sense because you are all, you are both growing fast and aligned. And then we had like a second call and I said, let's, let's be real. Here's what we're good at. Here's what we're bad at. And I want you all to tell me what you're good at and what you're bad at. And it wasn't just a commercial sort of alignment, but as we went down the list of the operational strengths and weaknesses of the two companies, it just like, it fit together like a glove. Like the way that we sold versus the way that they sold the way that, you know, we ran uh, customer strategy versus the way that they ran customer strategy and yada, yada, yada. As you went down, like where we had built up the most maturity, they were the most immature. Where we were struggling, they were nailing it. And so we went tit for tat down the list and we're like, this makes a ton of sense. Now, can we structure a deal, which is a totally different part of the process? Because you can sit there and say, this makes a ton of sense. Commercially makes sense. Operationally makes sense. But getting a deal done is a whole other can of worms. And so it started in, you know, March, 2021, about maybe February. And, you know, we worked nonstop. And taking your eye off the business while you're trying to get a deal done, when two things are true at that moment, if you don't perform, the deal will fall apart. If the deal falls apart and you didn't perform, you're left holding a bag of shit. So there's this tug of war that's going on and you're trying to insulate your team. You can't tell everyone what you're working on because A, it's not real yet, but you need certain people to be in the loop and you respect them a tremendous amount, right? Like you don't, you're not trying to keep them in the dark because they don't deserve to know. It's, it's like this balance of like, Should they know? Should they not know? When should they find out? I need them focused. It's not real yet. So you play this sort of game of secrets for a while, which is super, super tough. You know, you're pushing yourself and you're pushing the team to perform because you needed to, you need to perform for the deal, but you also need to perform if the deal doesn't happen. And it took us a a lot of work, man. I mean, people burned it at all ends. And I, you know, I burned myself out like hard. I mean, it was like, you know, nonstop until we closed the deal on December 7th. And we were able to announce the team and tell everyone what we were working on. And at that point, I think the people started, started catching on in like September, October, they're like something, something's got to be going on. And then we moved into the integration. And that's been a very interesting <laughs> ride. So your transition. You're still obviously working with Quartile. What's the deal with your involvement in the acquisition? So I have always been a sole founder CEO. There are advantages and disadvantages. I actually don't, still don't know what the right answer is for anybody. Daniel, who's the CEO of Quartile, looked at me at the first dinner we had. He goes, how in the hell could you ever do anything remotely like this by yourself? And by yourself, by the way, is not a fair assessment of like, there's a team there's a of team. people, yeah. but yeah, you're as the a sole yeah. founder, mm-hmm. yeah. because at the end of the day, there's a level of accountability that's on you at the board level, you know, the investor level, you know, there are certain things that you can share and you can't share. 
when things are going right or wrong or, you know, or otherwise that you're, you know, you're on an island. It's very, very lonely. And you don't really have anyone to, anyone to share with. You can't share with people in the company because you don't want to scare them. Can't share with your board because of course you want to be transparent, but there's certain things you got to, you got to manage there. I was very, very fortunate to have a great, great board and, and some particular people that I, I leaned on heavily. Your friends and family don't understand what the fuck you're talking about. And, and they give you, you know, sort of advice that is very sweet and kind, but doesn't, is not in the full context of what's going on. So you're by, you're by yourself. You know, Daniel looked at me and said, like, how? How is it possible? And I think that it was a, a moment of sort of reflection on my whole journey and a realization that coming into Quartile, I was not going to have a team of a broader executive team and a team of co-founders. Their company was like five of them, six of them. They were all co-founders, all sharing the burden and responsibility of starting the business from day one. And that's just a, it's a different dynamic. And it's a responsibility and burden is distributed and shared. And so that has been an awesome transformation for me to be in an environment where I share that sort of, you know, responsibility and burden with other people. And we can have, you know, those honest conversations and whatever else and like, you know, problem solve in a little bit different capacity. The executive team though now is also in, in the loop in that, in that way. But in the early days, you know, at Sidecar, it was, it was not that way. I had to shield people from, from, from certain things. So that's been awesome. It has also been difficult going from CEO to now president of the business. I'm no longer CEO. There's a level of sort of authority and decision-making, which I'm not trying to necessarily, I'm not in a, a land grab for power, but there's certain instincts that you have and that you always operated off of and that you could turn that instinct into a decision. And now there's a bit more of a committee around, around your instincts, right? And so that's been a challenge. I've also learned a tremendous amount about a different business culture. I've only ever known what I've worked within. And those were companies that I was a founder of. And to enter into, a, into an environment, an organization where, you know, Daniel and his team have a different mode of operation. They think about sort of business a little bit differently. They make decisions that I initially didn't agree with, but then realized were like decisions I probably should have been making at the speed that, that they're making them. It's just been, it's been an awesome exposure to something that I didn't realize I was going to appreciate as much as I as I do. It initially rocked my world. I was completely thrown off for the first two months. And I would tell anyone, and I've told this to some some other folks that are going through this process now, that like, do not extrapolate out the first three to four months into how it's going to be going forward. Like, give it a second. Everyone needs to reorient. You need to reorient. Like everything needs to find its place. And then you can figure out what the future is going to look like. But if you if we all took the first two months of this integration as like what the world and life was going to be, we all would have thrown our hands up in the air and said, fuck this, we're out. <laughs> it evolved much more than you expected. Probably quicker too, right? Great share, man. And I wanted to ask you too, how Gary V and his digital marketing agency, how does that compare to what you guys do? Is it similar? Is it the same? Just curious in your own words. There's a lot of different kinds of marketing, uh, digital marketing, and for different purposes and different kinds of businesses. Gary's company and agency is driving more brand awareness for the most part for companies than what we do, which is down funnel. So if you think about the sort of marketing funnel, there's like driving like awareness for something. Then there's like driving sort of deeper consideration, right? Like you've gotten past discovery. I know about these brands. Now I want to sort of research them and evaluate them. And then there's like, I'm at the point of purchase. I need someone to sort of really drive me to like the transaction. We live at the the lower part of the funnel and we focus very specifically on e-commerce. We have not one customer, not a single customer that does not sell online. And 
either have a shopping cart on their own website or sell on Amazon. So we are, we are just e-commerce, e-commerce, e-commerce. They have a mix of customers. And I think that their bread and butter is really driving awareness. And they're really good at that stuff. But like we live at different parts of the funnel. Got it. And I appreciate that. Talk quickly too about how algorithms ha- you know, change and just how you target markets for marketing. Just a little bit of knowledge on on the various different social sites and how the algorithms always change and and what have you. I would say that the the simplest way to answer that is that the algorithms that are changing for search results and the algorithms that are changing for what shows up in your newsfeed and that sort of stuff are not as much of a factor in what we do. There is certainly modifications, but it's far more incremental on the marketing and advertising side than it is in sort of like what organic results show up on Google and which person gets priority in your feed or which news article gets priority in your feed. Those are like kind of, they're not entirely separate worlds, but there are different parts of like of the, you know, the social media or search engine organization. Ultimately on Google as a, for instance, or on Amazon as a, for instance, and this is not absolute, so I don't want to simplify too much, but you're paying for placement. And so you're making a decision when somebody searches for X, I'm willing to pay Y to show up. And like, there's a lot of dimensions and dynamics to like, you sort of, do you show up for somebody when they have an iPhone in this zip code? Do you show up for somebody when they're on a PC at this time of day? You have all these different little manipulations, but ultimately it comes down to how much are you willing to pay for a keyword for when someone searches? On social, it's how much are you willing to pay to show up for someone who fits a demographic that you're trying to target? That's really the, the overriding factor is the how much you're willing to pay. It's not, you're not playing this game against algorithms as much. I'm not, I want to be very clear. There are things that are at play, but it's not all those changes you hear about how they're sort of, mani- they're, they're not manipulating, but they're modifying feed, you know, and, and search Organic growth. Yeah. That's not, that's not our world. Yeah. Got it. So what are you working on right now? What are you passionate about? And, and I know you're, you got some, uh, you got some residential deals that you're into and, and I can see that you're pretty passionate about that. Yeah. I'm generally an excitable person. So I like to get, you know, if I get moving on something, I, I get, I get to take a lot of sort of, you know, wind in my sails about it. But first and foremost, I'm very bullish on this combination of sidecar and quartile. We've built and we've brought together two really awesome companies that stand alone in the market as now the largest e-commerce marketing platform globally. And we've got a lot of greenfield. We've got a lot to do. We've got a big business to build. And we've got an awesome team to do it with. So despite the acquisition and you know some of the benefits and that sort of stuff you know, that come from that, like there's a second bite of the apple and a, a big outcome I want to drive with now the combined businesses. So that's, that's one. But on the side, during the last three years, my wife and I, we had two kids. We built a home to sort of have our first child in. And we approached it very much as a sort of creative project. She comes from the design world. She's super talented in sort of like spatial design and experience design. And she can walk into any room and just scan it like, you know, RoboCop. And like, she can visualize things that I just, I can't. And at a speed that just blows my mind. And she can come home and she can translate that thought and that vision into a 3D model on our computer, you know, at breakneck speed and with break with, you know, tremendous precision. And it's just, it's so good. And so, you know, I'd seen what she had done at, in her, in her sort of day job and, and what was she, she was doing professionally. And we, I was like, look, I love project management. I love the finance side. I also have a sort of creative knack, not nearly, you know, uh, as good as, as you do, or not nearly as good as you are. 
but let's combine our forces here. Let's go find a property and let's not go build something that somebody else, let's not move into something, else, something that somebody else built. Let's create our own reality. You know, very much like we sort of do in the entrepreneurial world, world, like I want to go create a physical space around us that is ours and that we built and that we put our stamp on. And we always talked about like how awesome it is. We live in the digital world. If we can go build something that like is going to be there for 30, 50, 100 years, like who knows? Like to have that impact on the physical world and have that tangible sort of contrast to what we do every day would seemingly be very gratifying for us. And so we got into it and we did one residential project. It was a big project for us. And it was just awesome. It was just such an amazing experience for us. We, what everyone told us would be like grueling and brutal and the reasons why we shouldn't do it and the reasons why nobody does it like this. And were all the reasons why we were, you know, excited to get up at five o'clock in the morning and head to the property and then get there late at night and spend, you know, two hours in the dark walking through the property and like pointing out this and the other thing and like sourcing all the materials. And like, we just loved it. It was awesome. So we were, you know, we, did, we burned it at both ends. We were, you know, she was working full time and working crazy hours. I was, you know, running sidecar, but we figured it out and we just added more hours to the day and slept a little bit less. We got it done. We moved into it. We had the benefits of an awesome market behind us. It sold for like a record, record number in, in the zip code and record number, you know, on a price per square foot basis in the, you know, in the city. And we're like, that was great. That was fun. We should continue doing this. And so, you know, we're in an exploratory phase of this venture. We've, we've acquired one property. We will get some more and we, we want to continue doing this. It's just so gratifying. And we think there's a, there's a tremendous opportunity there. We got to find the balance because we're still, you know, I got to, we got a big business of Cortado to build. Bill loves what she does, you know, but it is something that we do. Uh, although we did, and then we want to do more of. Good stuff. Now I, I got to hear a little bit about what you're venturing into. And uh, that's exciting stuff, man. The developer builder bug in you. I love it. Yeah. Hey guys, it's Nick. I have a short message from our sponsor, MPC Builders. With well over 40 years of combined construction-related experience in both the residential and commercial markets, MPC Builders services the New Jersey and Philadelphia metro areas. Check out our website at mpcbuilders.net or you can call me directly at 856-217-1750 and I'd be happy to answer any questions you have about your construction project. So if there's a young lady, young man that is being pushed to go to college, but deep down inside, they know that that college is not for them. What would your advice be to someone that wants to figure something, you know, f- just do something unconventional, like an entrepreneur or something that you did? What would your advice be to someone to just go all in on their passion and, and just get after? My advice would be that immediately after I give you the advice I'm going to give you, go talk to somebody else. Because I'm going to sell you on why you should not be going to college. I'm going to sell you hard on that. There is next to nothing. I want to be very, very clear. Next to nothing that I learned in college that was helping me, you know, start any of my businesses. I, by the way, I created an awesome network. I was very fortunate to be at UMass at a time at which there was a cohort of people who were predominantly from the Northeast and from New York in particular, who all have become very successful and mostly are all entrepreneurs. And it was just, I don't know whether that was, maybe maybe that's the way that it's been for the years after I left UMass, but it feels like a, a moment in time. Like I was there when I met these, you know, these people, the guys and girls that I met, and they all, be, you know, went the entrepreneurial route. 
And so there was a great benefit from that. But from a, from a classroom perspective, I got nothing. And that's me also. Like I wasn't invested in it. I, I barely went to class. I was barely making it by, you know, there. And had I jumped in earlier, I'd be leaps and bounds ahead of where I am today. Now, that is, that is also to say that there's a farce out there. The Zuckerbergs, the Sergey Brins and Larry Pages who dropped out and started Google and started Facebook. And like, they're always highlighted as the folks that like, see, you can be a college dropout and you go do that. Like, that's not a fair assessment. If you actually look at the public companies, who the founders or CEOs are, where they came from, what schools they went to, the sort of educations they got, they often come from the Ivy League schools. They got their MBAs and they went to like one of four schools. So it is not a fair assessment, but personally for who I was, I was not going to Harvard. No fucking shot. I did not have the grades in high school, in high school to afford me that opportunity for, for me to deserve that opportunity. So if I was going middle of the road, UMass, UMass was like, honestly, I think I recall that I didn't want to be away from my high school girlfriend for another weekend and go on another like college visit. So I was just like, you know what? They accepted me. That's, I'm just gonna, that's where I'm going to go. And I just chose one. If you're living in that world, talk to somebody else after this advice, but don't fucking waste your time or your money. Get to it. Get right to it. And I would, you know, I would say the thing, say I have two sons. If I had a daughter, I'd say the same thing to her. But, you know, when that time comes, if they have that entrepreneurial drive, if that's the direction they're going, and I, yeah, and, and I'm in a position to finance, you know, their college education. And it's a decision of like, I'm going to pay for this. Or, you know, you want to, you ultimately like, okay, here's some seed funding. And let's go like, and like, and by the way, you can burn through that, but you're going to learn in burning through that 15, 20, 30, 50, whatever, learn a lot more, so much more, <laughs> so much, so much more. Something you said, Andre, though, that I just want to highlight because I, I wholeheartedly agree your network and your relationships that you built in college is by far, by far the most important part of a college experience. If you are really that outgoing person, meeting people and, and, you know, developing those relationships and connections, because like you said, I mean, so many of my, my friends, you know, they're, they've become business owners. I'm connected with them. I have relationships. We do business together. That's the one big important piece, you know, of college, in my opinion. But, it, but if you don't need that piece of paper to be a, be a lawyer, you know, attorney, doctor, dentist, I don't see any other reason why you're spending that kind of money. Me either. And like, you know, networks can be built in other ways. I mean, the kinds of relationships you build and like, there's an odd thing in my life. Like, you know, my high school friends are still I mean, my like elementary school friends that became, you know, they're ultimately middle school and then high school. I mean, I'm having dinner with, you know, four of them tonight. There's this group of seven of us and we are tight and we're still super tight. My college friends, we are all still tight. And by the way, all those groups now intermingle. They also happen to have really close high school friends. And now they're all, there's this big group of people. And so that network was really important to me. And I built another one, you know, in college. And so I did get a lot of that, you know, I did, did get that value out of it. But maybe I would have built a network, not through college. I don't know. You know, I can only say that I definitely got that from it. But I can't say that's the only place to get that. But generally speaking... I don't understand why all of these kids are so hellbent and why we are still in the cycle of, you know, after high school, you go to college. It just doesn't make sense to me for certain practices. Great. I mean, it's, it's grandparents, parents, most of them still continue to push, push like that's, that's the only way. And it pains me, which is the main purpose of this podcast, just the, the loan, the student loan debt that they're burdened with what you know, the parents, the kids, whoever, it's just, ah, uh, it just, it just pains me because the return on investment's not there. And, and particularly if you look at sort of, you know, the increase in wages versus the increase in cost of education, if they were at least correlated, 
right? Then your debt proportionate to your earnings would be on the same act, you know, on the same line. But it's just completely, completely upside down. And it just, it's unfair. It's an unfair sort of system that, that we've built that sucks, sucks everybody in and has just convinced everyone that you need it. You don't need it. And I keep saying it's not sustainable, but if people are going to keep paying it, it may, it may sustain. One last thing. Do you want to share your contact information, website, how people can get a hold of you? Sure. They can email me at Andre Quartile, Q-U-A-R-T-I-L-E.com. Website's Quartile.com. If you or anyone you know runs an e-commerce business of a certain size, so we have a certain threshold of you know, about a million dollars of annual end revenue, I'd be happy to sort of you know work with you. And you know, I'm particularly interested if there's people if there's entrepreneurs locally in the Philadelphia area. I grew up in this environment. I tried to build a business in the environment in this environment, try to raise money in this environment. It's changed. Money is more readily available. The venture capital community has expanded. So Philadelphia is not on an island anymore, but it's still harder here. This is not New York. It's not San Francisco. It's not Miami. It's not Austin. You know, it's a little bit sort of on the outskirts of the, the primary sort of entrepreneurial cities. And so if there are folks here that are trying to get an upstart, trying to get their sort of legs underneath them, and particularly live in the space that I can be helpful with. Like I got healthcare, not, you know, I, I had a software application that was years ago, you know, biotech. Those are things I don't understand. But, you know, B2B tech, I love talking about that stuff. Good stuff, man. Andre, I appreciate you, man. Thank you for sharing your journey with us. Nick, I appreciate it, man. I hope, hope this was good. Oh, fantastic, man. And I hope to uh, connect with you soon. All right. We'll talk soon, buddy. Thank you, man. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Constructing Greatness podcast. If you enjoyed what you've heard today, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, you can reach me directly at nicholasofac at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening.